G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. Our economy is transitioning away from the mining boom. The record commodity prices that drove growth are now receding. Our future growth will depend on a different type of boom, an ideas boom. This is the opportunity of the 21st century. This is a century of ideas. This is a time when Australia's growth, when our living standards, when our incomes will be determined by the, the human capital, the intellectual capital that all of us have. Despite 25 years of consecutive annual economic growth, we can never take our growth for granted in this country, ever. And today, our focus is innovation. Australia fell two places to 19th in the world in this year's Global Innovation Index, with a notable failure to develop ideas through to commercial application, a failure in short to innovate. But what exactly is innovation? Why is it so important to our country? What policy levers are available? Let's seek views from across Australia. In Canberra, Professor Ian Chubb, Chief Scientist of Australia from 2011 to 2016, joins us. On the line from Sydney is Dr Catherine Woodthorpe, who has served on boards ranging from ASX-listed companies to research institutes and government entities for over 17 years. And here in the studio, I'm joined by Professor of Management at the University of Melbourne, Danny Sampson, who works at pioneering the application of innovation within Australian industry. Danny, let's start with you. What exactly is innovation? Why is it so important to the future of our economy? Glenn, I think the most important thing to say about innovation is that it should be associated with the word new, which begs the question, new what and how new? And actually, the answer is, from an organisational perspective, new anything. So the formal definition is new products, services, processes, technologies, methods of managing or marketing, and indeed, ultimately, completely new business models. For example, Uber and Airbnb are examples of not very much new in the way of products, the vehicles and the beds and the bedrooms in those companies are already there, but the way in which those businesses actually do that business and bring it to the customer is completely new. So that's what I mean by new business models. Do we run the risk that we're stretching the definition so widely it ceases to have any meaning? Well, no, I don't think so. I think that as, uh, as we have to add on to that definition that it's supposed to add value and help an organisation or help society to achieve goals. And I'm happy also with that broad definition, and that's roughly the OECD definition that I've more or less paraphrased there, by the way. Uh, and I think that it's uh, also nice to acknowledge that innovation doesn't have to be big, radical, new-to-the-world stuff. And in fact, in companies like Toyota that I was just talking to you about before we started, uh, they do hundreds and thousands even of very small incremental innovations and the occasional big radical innovation. So they construct a portfolio of innovations and that's really world's best practice. So this is progress through marginal gains. Yep. Catherine, what do you think of as innovation? For me, innovation, there's just two words that need to be added together and that's ideas and then implementation. So certainly out in the, um, in the wider world, innovation is often equated with ideas or invention, and they forget about the implementation bit, which is back to your point of it also has to add value 
And even that can't be done until it's actually implemented. And that's the bit that's an absolutely crucial part of the, the whole innovation pathway is to implement it and actually deliver something at the end, whether it's a service, a, a new business model or, or a product that's a, um, a widget of some kind. So turning to the role of government, and Ian, if I could ask you, a relatively small landlocked country with little natural resources, Switzerland, tops the Global Innovation Index. So is this government doing? Is it private sector doing? Why is innovation um, possible in some places but less seen in others? Uh, Glenn, I think um, I'll, I'll get to that question. I just wanted to add to the definition of innovation. It's very clearly... Uh, should be designed to make things better. Now, you could say that uh, that's value-add, um, sure, um, but you can implement bad ideas as well as good ideas. You can make serious mistakes. So so I think that, that I'd like to think that what we're all working to do is to have a fairly broad definition, but the ultimate aim of the exercise is to make better whatever it is that we're trying to do. So, Ian, I'd be fascinated by your perspective on innovation, but I'm also keen to ask you why a small landlocked country with no natural resources, Switzerland, tops the global innovation index. What does that tell us about innovation? It tells us that if you've got nothing else but your people, then you have to invest in your people and you have to invest in the processes, I think, that let those people do some of the things that we've just been discussing. And um, when I became chief scientist, I was really, and, and had an opportunity to focus on this, I, I was really quite surprised at how many governments elsewhere in the world or governments of countries that we could uh, choose to be like, how many of those uh, countries had governments that were involved, uh, deeply involved in, in setting the framework, setting the policies in place, facilitating uh, the capacity of their people to do the things that they wanted to take them to, the new businesses, the new economies, whatever it might be. And Switzerland was one of those. So there are government policies, there are strategic priorities, there's an attitude to investment and in education more generally that um, I didn't think uh, we shared. Instead, what we do is we believe the market will solve all our problems and we hear it again today that, oh, you know, the market will solve this problem, the market. I have no confidence that the market will solve anything in the absence of good policy. Well, let's talk about good policy. Catherine, over the last 15 years, there have been more than 60 reports addressing Australia's innovation challenge, and yet uh, we've seen relatively little progress. The perceived divide between universities and industries remains strong. What does it take in policy terms to encourage innovation? I think one of the absolute clear problems that we have is stability in policy. Um, it's something you talk about 60 reports into uh, the innovation system and so on, but inevitably almost every time we get a report, we change all the programs. And so we have programs that support industry and collaboration with the um, academic world that are then suddenly taken away. And, and amongst other things, it reduces the confidence of industry to participate in these programs because you might be uh, putting together a grant for commercial ready, say, in the, back, in the past or commercialisation Australia, you get to a certain point. Um, you might even have got through all of the hurdles and suddenly, no, all bets are off, we've changed the programme. And I've deliberately used one from each side of, uh, of politics to illustrate that. And, and I know companies who just say, look, it, it's all too hard. I just don't want to participate. Um, certainly, if you look overseas, one great example is, has been SBIR, the Small Business 
industry research grants. I think I'm right. I got that correct. Uh, which is a U.S. program that encourages small business to interact with large government departments by actually tendering for research programs. And that's 35 years old. And the stability of that gives industry confidence that that will be there and they can work towards it. So whatever the policies are, the main thing is to stop changing them. Danny, what's your take? Why does Australia sit mournfully at the bottom of the league table when it comes to the gap between universities and industry? Yes, it's uh, it's great sadness to me actually being a university professor and I think uh, I want to strongly agree with Ian's uh, view and not just Switzerland by the way but uh, I was thinking about Israel, Singapore, South Korea, post-war Japan – uh, all of which catalyzed tremendous economic growth substantially on the back of innovativeness, which was catalyzed by government. There are very famous stories, for example, about what happened in Japan after the Second World War, where the, the government, the department was called MITI and famously brought together the industrialists and said, cough up some money and we're going to do collaborative innovation. So there was very active or proactive, actually, policy involved in that. And now compared to that, my observations over the last 25 or 30 years have been that we are a bit reticent, or maybe even that's understating it, we don't like picking winners. And we have this approach where occasionally somebody does pick a winner and we get our fingers burnt. May I just add to that that the recent innovation stance and the words that have been coming from our Prime Minister and his office have been that we shouldn't be scared to take risks. Now, that's the first time I've heard that in quite some time from our Prime Minister in Australia and now we need to turn that right set of words, in my view, into action and then we might make some progress. Catherine, when you talk about reluctance by industry to engage with universities, what needs to change? You talked about the stability of the programs but the industry people you work with, what are they looking for in researchers and universities that they're not getting that might change the way they interact. It's interesting. The The relationship, I think, between industry and universities is coloured on both sides by a sense of other. Um, there's quite a them and us. There's much less integration in, in compared to some, say, precincts in overseas uh, countries. I think there's still a sense from industry that um, somebody in a university will help for a while but get distracted by their own research or want to do something else themselves and there is no sense of being able to keep them on your timelines, your budget lines in the sort of tight sense that, that industry has to work usually. So, And, and that, I'm not necessarily saying that's true but that's the, the perception certainly from industry that it's no use going and talking to universities because, you know, they, they waffle along forever and it takes twice as long to do anything um, and so I think part of it is just growing the understanding and confidence in one another and, and from the university's point of view, understanding industry and the sorts of timelines they have to deal with and the sorts of tightness of budgets they have to deal with in order to actually just build confidence in working together. But we do have one fantastic example of universities and industry working together, um, and that's the Cooperative Research Centre programme. I know Ian's heard me spruiking it before, but as somebody who's been involved with the programme for the last 20 years, I find it's been a great example of how industry and universities can work really closely together for a great commercial outcome whilst also delivering to the universities, PhD students and other benefits of, of that interaction. So we do have some 
wonderful little bright lights uh, in, in the relationship between universities and industry. And I wouldn't want to pretend that they don't exist at all. I think, you know, it's important to also be proud of the bits we have and build on them and leverage off them. Ian, do you share that optimism about the CRCs? <laughs> well, I'm on the selection committee for the uh, uh, present round, Glenn, so well, I guess the short answer is yes. <laughs> Um, but I, I did want to pick up a bit on the SBIR because, I, and I wanted to put it under the umbrella of a very general statement, and that is that I think historically we've lacked the courage to be bold. And um, and I think that the point that Danny made earlier is an important one. Um, Malcolm Turnbull did talk about not being afraid to take a risk. He also said that um, if some of the policies that they introduced in their innovation and science agenda uh, didn't work, they'd get rid of them or, or they would improve them. And it's not often you hear that either from uh, political leaders. So so I think our deficiencies go to um, truly risk-averse. Um, we lack leadership um, and we lack the courage to be bold. When I raised the SBIR as part of the innovation and science agenda, I was told by quite senior officials that it would not work in Australia. Um, notwithstanding the fact that it been uh, effectively copied, changed slightly, of course, and runs in the United Kingdom. Very similar schemes are operated in other countries, but we were just not even going to consider it because it wouldn't work in Australia. In the event, uh, there's a $20 million pilot program in Australia, which uh, is a small fraction of the investment that's made in other countries, and it illustrates another point, and that is that we atomise. So instead of having some big, bold endeavours and then encouraging people to manage the risks that are inherent in big, bold endeavours, we atomise so that if something goes belly up, it's little and nobody notices. Um, I just think that uh, we've had it too easy for too long. Um, we've rested on our oars because we delude ourselves into believing that we're world-class in everything we want to be world-class in except for cricket and things like that, which we lament endlessly. But instead of being rational and learning off the good things we do, because we do do some things really very well, uh, you know, we've got to get better at using and developing the policies, learning from what the rest of the world does, and being bold enough to introduce them into Australia and manage the risk. And we haven't done any of that particularly well. Danny, too easy for too long? Yeah, I think uh, we have been the lucky country. There's a lot of evidence about that. I think that one of the big gaps in Australia is that the average SME, think about somebody out in the western suburbs of Sydney or, or you know, out in Dandenong in Melbourne or indeed absolutely anywhere, they don't actually have some core knowledge about innovation. If you've got 10 or 20 or 30 people in your business, you're just trying to keep it afloat, manage the cash flow, get the day's you know, income in, manage the customer relationships. And we've got to find ways, and we haven't been very good at finding ways to get out there to them. That's a really tough one. I don't think we're going to crack that one very easily, but we will crack it with some of them. I think that's so important. You know, we so often think of innovation as new things in the way of startups and, you know, technology is the first thing that comes to people's minds. And innovation in existing companies to grow them, enable to take on new markets, enable them to expand geographically and, and also in terms of products they, they uh, offer to the market. We're going to get more leverage out of growing stuff we already have than starting from scratch with a whole bunch of startups. And I think it's really important that we do reach out and manage to build those relationships with companies who have those opportunities but haven't yet um, fully understood them or realised them. Well, Catherine, uh, actually, I think one doesn't necessarily preclude the other. 
let's no, let's, that's true. let's that's do true, a full we're only focusing on one, and I, I think we need both. Yeah, the startups have sort of hijacked a little bit of the debate, and it's not definitely not just about startups. So let's push that yeah. a bit further. And Catherine, I'm particularly interested in your view on why Australia, unlike lots of other nations, never developed a sort of substantial, large-scale industrial base. What is it about our history, our position in the world, our policy, that made our fundamental economy quite different from other nations? I think there's certainly a couple of things. I, I think it was you, Danny, mentioned, you know, we've had it too easy, or maybe it was Ian or both. And there's certainly been a luxury that we've had from our resources. And all those countries you mentioned before, the fact that they have no resources has forced them at the pointy end of survival to actually develop and, and use innovation to, to spur their industries. So I think that our ample resources has made that easy. And I think there's also been a bit of almost mental laziness, you know, going back some decades of we were reliant for thinking on the mother country, the old Dart, and that we didn't want to think for ourselves hard enough. So by the time all of those perfect storms moved and we, we no longer can say that we'll just keep digging coal up forever, um, and we certainly don't rely on the UK as our, our source of all knowledge. And we're kind of left standing looking around going, OK, so what now? Ian, why are we as we are? Because we lack the courage to be bold. We lack leadership and we lack vision. So what will Australia be like? Does anybody know what Australia will be like by 2030? Is anybody talking about what Australia should be like by 2025 on its way there? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be provocative, Glenn, and I'll say that we've let economists limit the vision instead of serving the vision. And we, we, we actually need the narrative to explain to people uh, why it's important that we're doing what we're doing and taking whatever risks it might be that we're taking. So, for example, our Prime Minister talked about what a, an exciting time to be an Australian. Um, he didn't sell that to a lot of people during the election campaign. And I would have guessed that he would find it very difficult to talk to the people in South Australia and Victoria who were losing their jobs as the automotive industries closed down. Um, so we, we lack the narrative. Why is it exciting? Why do we have to be agile? What sort of country are we trying to build here? How do the pieces that come together to help us build that country, that serve the vision? What's the budget like? What's the economy like? What's the education system like? What's the health system like? How do they all come together to build a country that we want to build? And I don't think we're getting that. And I think you get that elsewhere. Danny, you're an expert in the auto industry. Well, you spent a lot of time working there. Why do we not have the auto industry that, that one might have expected for a, a nation of our scale? Or alternatively, were we foolish to even try? No, I don't think we were foolish to try it, and I think it's very unfortunate uh, that, that we're about to lose. I'm, I'm uh, led to understand something like 70,000 jobs when you look at the whole of the supply chain that sits behind us. It's, it's going to be a very tough year for the economy next year. But I just want to remind us all that we used to have a textile clothing footwear industry, and we used to have a consumer electronics industry, and they've gone away, and the reasons are substantially because we're a high-cost country, because those lower-cost countries who we do better quality work than are now catching up and that quality gap always closes. And that only leaves one thing to compete on and that's innovation. 
And where we are good at innovation is the science end. So yeah. in the in the most recent IMD report, I think we ranked ninth in the world at the science part of innovation, which is the invention part, the R&D. Well, we don't spend enough money at it. We could never spend enough money at it. But it's the implementation part that you mentioned, Catherine, which is where we haven't been good. And it comes back to us being able to connect up the universities to the industrial sector. What's important to remember in that is that the eight above us include countries like Britain. Um, so what are they doing that we aren't doing? Well, uh, there's a long list of things that they're doing that we aren't doing. Um, but, you know, Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, um, these, these countries have invested and they've invested in a way which enables the culture to change. And until we change the culture, as Catherine said before, you know, the them and us attitude that's so prevalent, um, then we will not be particularly successful. So we'll wait till the next lucky thing comes along that, you know, the price of this goes up so we can dig it up or we can discover something else that somebody wants and, uh, and dig it up and sell it or whatever it might be. And I think that we've got to get realistic. It's a fairly ugly world out there. And until we invest... And and we do selectively invest because we can't do everything, um, and we can invest in a way that doesn't mean we've got all our, you know, eggs in the one basket. But we can still be fairly selective, and we can get the policy settings right, and we can we can express the narrative. We're building a country here. We aren't just looking at a budget deficit or surplus. We aren't just looking at a at a, a industry X or industry Y or startups, which mean apps. Um, we're actually trying to do something that will hand on to the coming generation something worth handing on. So that investment question is fascinating. Singapore last year put aside 18.4 billion Australian dollars for innovation. The UK, which Ian's just mentioned, are 5.4 billion dollars. Australia committed just over 1 billion dollars. In mm. fact, we spend 0.4 percent of GDP on research and development in this country. So we start with a very low research base. Catherine, what does that mean in terms of what's available to industry? I think the problem we have is that we don't value R&D, um, notwithstanding that we're, we're very good at it in so many areas, that the, the general, the country as a whole, just doesn't value, we don't value science, we don't value scientists. Um, and I think that's a huge part of why we don't understand why we need to invest in sciences and indeed science education as part of our this future and this vision and building the narrative. Um, and so I think in industry again just shrugs and goes, well, there's nothing for me in there with, with some wonderful exceptions. You know, someone like UTS has uh, really been working closely with industry to, to best understand what it wants. Um, to be honest, I think CSIRO has let uh, let the ball drop in a lot of areas in terms of, you know, that middle letter is I, and it doesn't mean, again, just a whole bunch of startups, but really supporting our current industry to do what they do better, to grow their export markets, to improve their products so they're more competitive and so on. So I, I think that uh, we've still got a long way to go. And, and you know, I'd really also like to pick up on Ian's point about the narrative and the vision Innovation, if you're in the western suburbs of Sydney, means I get to lose my job. Same in Geelong, Broadmeadows and so on. And we haven't painted the vision that says here's a future that includes you. And I think, you know, we see this in a lot of countries in terms of what's happening politically. We have not painted the picture that includes those people whose jobs will inevitably go as part of the transformation that's going on globally anyway. And we need to find not only the vision, 
but then the narrative that draws them in and says, look, you can you can come on this journey with us. You're not going to be cast off and uh, and left for dead at the side of the road. So I think it's just so important that we get an understanding of the value of science, science education, that we respect and, and think of our scientists as something, you know, maybe more important than your average footballer. We, we really need to get our priorities right. I mean, I, I was listening yesterday to uh, some discussion that followed the announcement that um, there'll be a review of the uh, government's approach to climate change and so on. And I heard some politicians talking about how, you know, discussing a, a, some way of pricing carbon as being the dumbest thing they'd ever heard. And I thought to myself, um, where is the leadership in this? Uh, what, we, uh, what we're really saying here is that the job is more important to us than what we do with the job. And, and I think too many people are actually in that position, that, that getting the job and securing the job is more important than what you do when you've got it. And, uh, and I think we're crying out for, for, for leaders who can say, here are the pros, here are the cons, this is why I sit on this side of the fence rather than that side of the fence and have a decent, civilised but deep debate about some of these critical issues and not assume that it's dumb because some people won't vote for you next time. And we're not mature enough to even have the discussion. Just to follow up on that and summarise, I'd like to uh, quote a CEO who said to me quite a while ago, but I think it's still true. He said, Australia has no business plan. And to take that idea of a business plan that we normally assign to a company, uh, there are other countries that actually have a specific business plan. Taiwan, for example, was a country that decided to get into hardware and then decided to switch much more into software. What's our equivalent of that been? And it's just been natural resources. Going back 100 years, it was wool and wheat. And in the last 15 or 20 years, it's been a whole lot of mineral resources and the luck occasionally runs out for us. And we don't have the intellectual powerhouse whereby we can implement the ideas. So also on the science theme, I don't particularly want us to do a whole lot more science. We already do excellent science. Picking up on what Catherine defined as the important ideas of innovation, I think we're good at the ideas part. That's the science part, the invention part but we need to be a whole lot better at the implementation. Recently, Minister Greg Hunt announced support for research precincts and the aspiration to bring researchers in industry and other players together. Is precincts a way to find the bridges that people have been aspiring to see? Well, not by definition. I, I don't believe they are. It depends on who you bring together. So um, I, I can remember a couple of years ago saying that if you... If you wanted to call an area of a city a precinct uh, because it had a university there or CSIRO or whatever and a number of, um, say, SMEs, then then the way to do it would be to ask the SMEs what they wanted the universities and CSIRO to do rather than what we traditionally do, which is say, we do this and we think it would be good for you. So it would depend on how they worked it, uh, Glenn. I mean, the, the principle's not bad. Um, but the but the practice is quite difficult, and and in in many instances where they've been successful, there's been massive refurbishment, such as around you in in Parkville, which is you know a precinct which I'm very confident will work very well indeed. But in a number of ways, you could almost consider it as being greenfield because the, there's so much you know capital investment has been put into it to bring 
people together in, in very sensible ways. Um, but around some of our other institutions that are, say, close to the city, there are established businesses there that were established for all sorts of reasons, not necessarily because there's a university there or a big division of Syro. Again, I think it's an idea worth pursuing. I think he's, he, he's, he's right to raise the issue, but simply because it's worked in some places doesn't mean to say that it would work here unless we're courageous and bold. And I think it, it really does require some different thinking once you've, you know, grabbed the concept, right, how are we going to make it work? You wouldn't just say, well, that's a precinct, let's put a fence around it and they can all have lunch together every month. Danny, one of the key familiar tropes of this debate is the contrast between basic research and applied and ministers often saying universities are spending too much time worrying about basic research, academics are too focused on publication and journals, really they should be about application. How do you view this part of the debate and what should we learn from it? Well, I have a bias, which is that I'm originally an engineer and I worked in industry, so I have an applied sense to pretty much everything that I do. And I think we should think of it as a portfolio. We do need boffins who do pure science, but we also need to temper that in a portfolio sense with the applied sciences. If there was a judgment that had to be made, I'd like us to strengthen up our applications and build those bridges out to industry. So the publish or perish pressure, as it's often known as. It's very real. But I reckon now we need to get better, and we are slowly getting better, at publish or perish, but also to strongly engage. The criticism back would normally be that if we don't invest in basic research, we won't have enough pipeline to produce the applications. That often the delay between basic research being undertaken and it producing commercialisable objects is quite a, a long pathway, 10, 15, 20 years, and that you fund basic research without knowing where it'll end up, but that's the price of innovation. That's true. But I just remind you that we've already been discussing that we're something like ninth in the world at science and technology, but something more like 20th or even 29th at the actual implementation part. So if our, if our portfolio's a little bit in need of some adjustment, I'd like to see more effort at the application and the engagement to take the science that we have and that we're going to have, where we're pretty good, out to the world. This becomes the central question. How do we translate excellent research and really world-class, to use Ian's expression, science, into innovation in the Australian economy that will benefit people and take us forward? So what's the prescription here? And perhaps, Catherine, if I could start with you. I think that the most important thing is for us to actually be working together on this with a, a deliberate outcome in mind, your business plan, Danny, or, you know, whether it's uh, um, some sort of vision of where we're going. And unless we have that, we will never do the implementation because what's the point if we don't know what we're doing, what we're wanting to achieve? So an entrepreneur who has both an idea and implements it actually knows what she wants to achieve at the end of the day. She has a vision that there's been this problem out there. I can see how to solve it. And I can see how to sell that and I can see how to make a business out of that and how to grow that business. And so we really need the, all of those steps and, and we just don't have that. And I wish I knew how to persuade our polity that it's so important and we really need to stop saying, as Ian said, you know, well, that's just dumb. Let's not do that. But actually work out how to have that conversation in a, in a deep and useful way. Ian, the policy changes you'd like to see? Oh, um, Glenn, uh, there are many too many. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I, I, going back to something I said earlier, 
I, I would like us to encourage our political leaders uh, to take risks by managed risk, of course, assessing and managing, but being willing to um, and to really get ourselves into a position where they lead a discussion about why some of these things are important, by contrast with even implicitly, um, if not literally, but certainly strongly implicitly, saying, well, we'll wait till, you know, we'll, we'll have some sort of peculiar plebiscite where we go back and we talk to people and they don't like it, we won't do it. That's not leadership. Um, you know, we need to be led and we need to be led wisely uh, we need to be led seriously, and we need policy sets which provide the framework for business uh, to do the things that they need to do, um, and to to work with the universities and each to be provided with appropriate incentives to enable it to happen. Because uh, the the basic message over the last thirty years is, if if you don't have the incentive, it's not going to happen. I mean, the sad thing is, much as I've enjoyed discussing it with you and. Danny and Catherine, but this discussion has been had, to my certain knowledge, since the late 1980s. I mean, John yeah. Dawkins, in a brilliant speech, I thought, uh, in Fremantle in about 1988, uh, talked about how Australia's got to live by the wit of its people and no longer rollick along in a coal truck and ride on the sheep's back. Um, you know, it, it, it was pointed out, it was crystal clear. Um, we We have policy settings which clearly have not worked, the R&D tax incentive, it'll cost about $3 billion this year and 12,000 companies pre-register for it. They are examples of, of trying to get the right framework in place that people feel comfortable with it, accepting the fact that there is a role for the government, talking to people with vision and not just economists, and getting us thinking about where we're heading and why all of the bits are important and they come together to build the country we want to build. It's been a great pleasure today to speak with guests here on The Policy Shop. Professor Ian Chubb, thank you. Thanks, Glenn. Dr Catherine Woodthorpe, thank you for your contribution. Thanks, Glenn. And Professor Danny Sampson, thank you. Thanks indeed. I'm Glenn Davis. Thank you for your company on The Policy Shop. This episode of The Policy Shop was produced by Owen Hassey with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar. Research was by Ellie MacDonald Copyright, University of Melbourne, 2016.